I live in Northwest Houston, so I consistently find myself having to use Highway 290 on my way home from work. And if you know anything about it right now, you know that you do not want to have to use it on your way home from work. So before I leave the office, I look at my phone, pull out my map apps, and try to discern which is the best and quickest way home. Sometimes it points me to just actually get on the highway. It's a a straight shot. Sometimes it's even moving faster than I would have imagined it to move. Other times it takes me way out of the way. In fact, a few weeks ago, I ended up in a suburban neighborhood that was not even close to my neighborhood. You could not even reasonably say was on the way to my house. It was having me turn right and left and 100 feet turn another right. I literally thought I was going to have to drive through somebody's yard to get home. Sometimes my relationship with God feels like that. It's a clear shot. I know exactly where I am. I feel forward momentum. Maybe it's not quite as quick as I would like that momentum to be going, but I can tell that I'm moving in the right direction. There are other moments in my relationship with God where it feels like the exact opposite. I don't have any idea where I am. And I'm asking three major questions. Um, How did I get here? Why am I here? And where is God? How did I get here? Why am I here? And where is God? In the scripture, they call that the wilderness. Psalm 63 is where we're going to focus our attention this morning. And King David, who wrote it, is in the wilderness, both physically and spiritually. It's an interesting story how he ended up in the wilderness. Uh, King David had a lot of sons. It's one of the things I love about the scripture. It's honest about its hero's flaws. One of the common accusations people make about us is that the Bible is just propaganda, propping up our faith. But if it really was propaganda, the authors of the scripture would not have put the flaws of its main character and definitely not the depth of those flaws. So King David had multiple wives, which he should not have done. And because he had multiple wives, he had many, many, many children. Second Samuel chapter 13 tells the story of how one of his sons, Amnon, sexually assaulted one of his daughters, Tamar. Another one of his sons, Absalom, noticed and set on that information for two years. And two years later, Absalom kills Amnon. Absalom has to immediately flee Jerusalem because even though he is a king's son, he's just killed another of the king's sons. And so Absalom goes and moves as far away as possible, but is still within the kingdom of his father, David. And for three years, he lives out of sight and out of mind. And about three years later, there's some peace negotiated between Absalom and his father, David. Some go-betweens trying to work it out. And Absalom is welcomed back into Jerusalem. But David is still holding a grudge. And so he refuses to see his son for over two years. Imagine for two years living down the street from your father in not a big town, not a mega city like Houston, small in comparison to our city. In a small town, your father refuses to see you. Well, after two years, Absalom's had enough. So he begins to conspire against his father, David. He begins to win people towards his side, one person at a time, undermining the king at every turn. Four years of this, Absalom is leading a nation within a nation. When King David hears what's happened, Absalom is leading a growing group of people. He doesn't confront his son. 
He doesn't bring him to the palace to have a conversation. David packs up his belongings, packs up the belongings of his family, packs up the belongings of all his supporters, and David runs from Jerusalem out into the wilderness. So you can imagine the king and the king's family and those loyal to the king leaving the palace, leaving the city, wandering around the wilderness deserts of Israel. Absalom moves into Jerusalem, moves into the palace, but he knows as long as his father is alive, he can't truly be the king. So he musters an army. They pursue David and his supporters. There's a battle and Absalom is killed. Bible historians believe that Psalm 63 is written in that wilderness period from the time that David left the palace to the time that Absalom is killed. Here's what we know about David. We know he was under attack. You may feel under attack today. You may feel attacked by someone at work. You may feel attacked by a group of people from work. You may feel attacked by a group of friends who you were in and now you're suddenly out. You may feel attacked by family members. You may feel attacked by the government or by the culture. The other thing that we know about David is that he had some responsibility. See, that's the thing about being attacked is rarely are we 100% innocent. Rarely have we handled every decision exactly the way that we should have. So it was messy. He had been a good king, but he had not been a good father. So he bore some of the responsibility. He's responsible for all of these people, which magnifies the stakes. And it's a no-win situation. He either loses his throne or he loses his son. There's nothing in between. David was in the wilderness physically, but also spiritually. How did I get here? Why am I here? And where is God? He was asking all those questions. You may be asking those questions today at work, at, uh, in your dating life, in your marriage. You may be able to describe, you know, my relationships at home feel like the wilderness. They feel like that in your connection to God. There used to be a time when my prayers were answered quickly where I had a great awareness of God's presence. That's gone for me. I feel like I'm just wandering aimless in the wilderness. So what should we do when we find ourselves in the wilderness? Psalm 63 is gonna give us a simple answer. We look for God before we look for a way out or a way back. See, that's the thing about the wilderness. We don't like it. We don't like that sense of wandering aimlessly. So we try to fix it. We try to find a way out of the wilderness. We look to our own influence. We look to others who have influence who might be able to change the situation for us. We want out or we look for a way back. We want it to be what it used to be. What was no longer is and we would like to return it to what was. We want a way back. That's what makes R&B songs so great. All of them are about getting back to the relationship. Boys to men have made millions off that. But before we do that, our first responsibility in the wilderness is to look for God. And it matters that we do. Because in the scripture consistently, God schedules wilderness seasons for his servants. It may be that God is using this wilderness moment in your life to shape you for the purpose he has for you but we may fix our problem and lose our purpose. So the stakes are high. Psalm 63 says in verse one, O God, you are my God. 
earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult in the mouths of liars. And the mouths of liars will be stopped. So David tells us that when we're in the wilderness, the first thing we should do is we should look for God. And when we look for God, what will we find? Well, we'll find power and glory. It says in verse two, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. The sanctuary David is referring to is what the scripture calls the tabernacle. It was like a tinted temple. And David would go there often to be in the presence of God. And in the history of God's people at the tabernacle, it was not unusual to see the smoke of God's presence and the fire of God's presence. We might think, well, that's not really fair. I don't see any smoke when I pray, I open my Bible. There's no heat coming off of that unless it's set on my dashboard all week before I bring it into church. You know? Hebrews chapter one, verse three says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. It's true that we don't see the smoke or fire of God. But in the writers of the New Testament's mind, we have something better than that. We can... Look to the son of God. And in the son of God, we see the fire of God. In the son of God, we see the power and glory of God. And more than just seeing it in Jesus, he's made it available to us. We have access to that power. We have access to that glory. We, we can know it ourselves because of Jesus. In the wilderness, we look for God. We see his power and glory. We also see his steadfast love. Verse three, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. David saying, because your long suffering love is so great, I would rather lose everything in my life than to lose your love. Imagine a court ordering you to give away everything that you have. You would start with the least significant things first. Here's a pen. Here's some pennies in the bottom of my junk drawer. Here's some gift cards to restaurants that I don't want. Here's a rug that, uh, you know, somebody bought and lent to us and has lived, lived in my garage ever since. You, you start giving all of the things away that you don't really want. And then you would work up to the things that were really important. And what David is saying, the very last thing that I would give up from my life is the love of God. I would give away everything before I gave away that. He's even saying, I would rather give up my own life than to give up. God's love, which is an incredible statement because our most primal and strong instinct is the instinct to survive, to stay alive at all costs. David says, no, I would rather be dead than to live for one second without the long suffering, ever enduring love of God. And when we look to God 
and for God in the wilderness, that's what we'll find. We also find satisfaction. He says in verse five, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. David compares being satisfied in God with being satisfied by a good meal. We've been noticing that in our family, we've been having reoccurring illnesses, you know, nothing serious, just kind of nagging illnesses that refuse to go away permanently. And we started analyzing our life. We realized that one thing that was not helping us is that our immune systems were not strong because our diet was awful and maybe we should do better. So Amanda and I made an executive decision for our family that we were gonna do Whole30 for the month of July. If you are new uh, to Whole30, let me describe what it's like. For 30 days, you take all the food that you love that tastes good in this world, you set it aside and you ignore it. Everything that you are left with, that's what you are allowed to eat. And when people are on Whole30, they just have to talk about it all the time, just like I am now. (laughs) They're bringing it up. I mean, they're bringing it up in conversations that are not relevant, but they find a way to bend it in. You say, hey, what did you do this weekend? Oh, we went to the lake. Well, I remember when I was doing Whole30, I thought about the lake all the time. (laughs) This has got to bring it up, bring it up, bring it up. And usually when people are bringing it up, they're talking about how great it is, how it's so nice to eat so healthy, how they feel so great. And just they can't have imagined why they, they waited so long to take on this endeavor. But I'm an honest person and I want to tell you today, I hate Whole30. <laughs> We're on day 10 right now. And all I think about all day is Shipley's Donuts. When I have some idle time, my mind drifts off and I imagine myself at the counter of a Shipley's Donuts. And they say, what can I get you? And I say, I want a dozen, two dozen hot glazed donuts. They say, well, we have some warm ones over here. And I say, no, those are not the ones that I want. I want to watch through your little window. You take the dough and dip it into the oil. I want to see that man pull that lever and then magically emerge out of the oil. I want to see him take that stick and take them off that thing and throw them down on this other rack. And then I want to watch him gloriously take that icing thing and go, ja-junk, ja-junk, ja-junk. And then I want to watch them sit in the icing. And then after about three and a half minutes, I want you to put them in a box I want you to play some music and I want you to present them to me. (laughs) This is what I think about all day long. (laughs) On Whole30. And here's what I've noticed. I've I've noticed that I don't look forward to eating. I don't. Food is just food. And that's probably the way that God intended it. (laughs) I I don't need any emails. But I don't look forward to eating. I don't push away from the dinner table and say that was the most unbelievable thing that I have ever eaten before. It's it's just food. And I do feel better. Uh, I see why people do this. And I am looking forward to the long-term health benefits of this 30 days, at the end of which I will immediately go to Shipley's Donuts. (laughs) But this verse has been coming alive to me this week. 
my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. Because there's a difference. There is a difference between a hot glazed donut and a bland chicken breast. (laughs) One is good for you and one satisfies you. One hits the spot. And what David is saying, when I look for God from the wilderness, if I really look, if I really look, I'm satisfied. See, so many of us are so bored. We're so bored with this whole thing. Because we're here because it's good for us. We're here because we know this is important for the long-term benefits of our life. But the scripture says, if you and I from the wilderness will look to God, we should be satisfied. We should be able to push away from the table and say, that was really good. Our mind should drift there. That's what David means when he says, in the middle of the night, I'll meditate on your works. Whenever my mind has idle space, I'm so satisfied with God. But that's where my thinking goes. And here's the thing. When we have that level of satisfaction, we don't try to rush out of the wilderness on our own ability. Again, we hate the wilderness. We hate the wondering. We hate the unknown. We hate those three questions. How did I get here? Why am I here? And where is God? And so we want to get out of that situation as fast as possible. But when we're truly satisfied with God and it's him that we've looked for first, then we can stay in our season as long as he has it scheduled. Right now, you may be tempted because you feel like you're in the wilderness at work to just start uploading your resume into every available platform. It may be that God is using this wilderness moment at work to shape you, change you, transform you, because there's a great purpose for you on the other side. And when you're satisfied with God, you can stay in your season a little longer. Maybe that your marital situation is not exactly what you want, either because there is no marital situation or because just your marriage is not good. Be satisfied in God. So you don't just settle for the first person who's willing to go to church with you. You want something better than that. Don't start daydreaming about what your life would be like if you exited your marriage and just started all over again. You stay in your season and you look for God. You find your satisfaction in him. David tells us that's what we'll find. Last thing that David says we'll find when we look for God out of the wilderness is we'll find help. Verse seven, for you have been my help and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. Verse nine, but those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals, but the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Now remember, David is literally being attacked. And there is a difference between literally being attacked and metaphorically being attacked. There were literally large groups of people seeking his life. One of those people was his own son. And he says, God, I know that I'm gonna find my help in the wilderness, not from my own hand, but from being in the shadow of your wings. Meaning, God, I know that you have my life covered. 
I know that you know my first day and I know that you know my last day. And so I'm looking to you for help. I love in these last three verses that David says, this is what's going to happen to those who are attacking me. But he doesn't assume that it's gonna be by his own hand. He knows this is how God is gonna protect me. And those who come after me with the sword are gonna perish by their own sword. God will be my help. So in the wilderness, before we start trying to fix our situation, we look for God. We're gonna find his power and glory. We're gonna find his steadfast love. We're gonna find satisfaction that we've never known and we're gonna find his help. So how should we look? David talks about that too. First, we should look with intensity. See the words that he uses. Verse one, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. You can imagine David being out in the wilderness with these people that he's responsible for. There's no babbling brook. There's no free flowing river through. He doesn't know where he's gonna end the day or begin the next day. He says, God, I wanna look for you the way that we are so desperate to find a good water source here in the wilderness. The way I faint when I feel like I don't have enough water out here in the desert. That's how I wanna faint for you. There's an intensity here. There's a passion to the looking. Have you uh, either asked your kids to look for something or babysat kids and asked them to look for something or your grandkids? You know how a child looks for things? They scan the ground immediately around them and they go, no, I can't find it. All of my children, none of them are in here uh, right now. So this story may change a little bit uh, for the next service. Um, they, they do not know how to find things. So I say to them, I'm gonna take $5 if I walk up there into your room and find it. And they hurry right back up the stairs. But when they get up there, essentially they do the same thing. Now I'm standing in my room and I look around my feet in about a three foot radius, six foot circumference and go, I can't find it. Compare that to when you have lost your keys in the morning before work. You done that lately? You start finding your pants from the previous day and you're just praying, God, please let them jingle when I pick them up. And they're, they're never in there. Ever are they in there. Right? So you start digging through all of your dirty clothes because maybe they've magically left that pocket and fallen into the bottom of the hamper. Ham, ham, hamper and, uh, and then you think, well, maybe I got my pants confused and I wore different pants. And so you're searching all of your closet. You're looking around the baseboards of your closet. You go to the kitchen. You look at all the counter, top space. Uh, it's not there. You start undoing the drawers, digging through the drawers. You start looking in the trash. How keys ever end up in the trash? I don't know, but you heard a story that they one time did. And so you're looking in the trash and you're looking, you can panic. You can feel the clock breathing down your neck. You're going to be late. What's your boss going to be say? And then it's not like you can say, oh, I'm sorry. I lost lost my keys because that's just irresponsible of you. So you don't even have a good excuse. So maybe you're going to lie and make one up, but you're like, I follow Jesus and I probably shouldn't lie, but maybe it's a gray area. I don't know. Then <laughs> you just start panicking, panicking, panicking because you can't find your keys. Or if you've ever lost one of your children for a minute, 
a few months ago, I decided to take the three, my three kids to the park. Amanda was gone for the afternoon and we had just recently moved. And, and so we loaded up in our bikes and we're headed to the park. And I was pulling Willa, just, I was walking, I was pulling her in this little unicorn chariot thing that she has. And, and we make it to the park and we spend some good time there. And it's a little bit hot, kind of like it is in this room right now. And, um, and so we decide about an hour later, let's head back home. And we, I had a deal worked out with my kids because they were on their bikes. They can obviously go faster. You know, they're 11 and eight. They can go faster than I can pull Willa and her unicorn chariot. And so they would get ahead and they would stop. And then I would get to them and they could go ahead a little bit further. We were doing this accordion thing. And on the way there, it worked perfectly. And so they take off, but I'm not worried because we've got this track record going for us. I get to where they are stopped and Jackson is there. And I say, where is your sister? And he said, I don't know. I think she went on. So we walk a little bit further ahead, but we're gonna have to turn left now. And I don't know really, is she ahead of us or is she behind us? So I'm making a decision here. If I turn left and she is behind us somehow, she's not gonna know where we are and then she's going to be panicked and really the only thing worse than me being panicked is that she would be panicked but I got enough evidence that maybe she's ahead and so we make a left and walk a little bit further and she's still not there and I start walking faster and faster and faster and everything inside of me wanted to take off and run but I've got these other two kids and one of those kids is a baby it's not like I can say stay right here and let me go and find and my heart starts beating fast and I can feel my blood pressure rise and I do that ang- uh, parent thing where I'm like I'm super angry at her but I'm super scared at the same moment because I'm thinking A, is somebody gonna get her uh, which is a parent's worst nightmare and then B, we just moved this is the first time to the park she's eight I don't know that she was paying attention on the way to the park in order to even get back to our house. David says, when we're in the wilderness, that's how we look for God. You look with a panic, like if I can't hear your voice today, I don't know that I'm gonna be able to make it. If you don't show me that your steadfast love is real in this wilderness moment, I don't know that I even want to go on. God, I'm so desperate for you. David says, when I look for God, my blood pressure goes up. But if we all had to take a survey today, including the pastor, and say, which is your search for God look more like? Does it look more like the heated search of a parent for a child? does it look like the lackadaisical search of a child? God, I look around my feet in a three foot radius and six foot circumference and I don't see you there. Why have you abandoned me? God, I know that I haven't been tuning in intentionally, but you've not been accidentally speaking to me and I'm frustrated with you. I mean, I know that I only read the scripture every once in a while, but when I do, I don't seem to get that much out of it. What we know with confidence is that a half-hearted search for God is ineffective. So David says, in verse eight, my soul clings to you. King James Version translates it, my soul will follow hard after you. I will search for God and seek God with as much passion 
more passion than I give anything else in my life. I'll search for him harder than I work out. I'll search for him harder than I work. I'll search for him harder than I work taking care of my children. It gets the best of me. We look for God with intensity. We also look for God with worship. He says in verse four, so I will bless you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. That's why we lift our hands when we sing sometimes. It's biblical, it's a good posture to be in. It's a sign that I'm blessing God, blessing you, God, for who you are and what you've been. There's a real temptation for us though in a wilderness moment to put a pause on our praise, see how things shake out. If things fall in my favor, then I unpause my praise. God, you're so good. I thank you so much for how these things have worked out in my life. I felt wondering and aimless and I don't feel that any way way anymore. And so I worship you, God. But we pause our praise because we know it may shake out the other direction. And we will just gently withhold our worship until we like the situation that we're in. But David tells us the character of God does not change. So our worship should never stop. If I can bless God from the palace, then I can bless God from the desert. With worship and with trust. He says in verse seven, for you have been my help and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. He says, God, you got me covered. And when you're in the wilderness, you have to believe that. Because usually when we're in a desert, we've never been that way before. And when we're walking on terrain in which we've never walked, our inclination is to take all the responsibility back into our hands. I've never been without a job, so I'm in charge. I'm newly married, it's fresh frontier. I'm in charge. Brand new kid, responsible for this little life. I'm gonna make sure. But David says, no, in my wilderness, I'm covered in the shadow of God's wings. I know that he has me and I will trust him. I mentioned that God sent more than one of his servants into the wilderness before he used them. He shaped his, shaped his servants there, Moses, even God's entire people, Israel, Elijah, and Jesus. After Jesus was baptized, it says he was led by the spirit into the wilderness. And he was led by the will of God through the spirit of God out into the desert. So you may find yourself in a wandering season of wilderness right now. How did I get here? And why am I here? Where is God? It may be that you are exactly where he wants you to be and he has orchestrated all of these things. It's true that some of, may have, some of your bad decisions have led to this wilderness, just like David, but God has a plan for you in the desert. And so before you and I rush out or try to rush back to the way that things were, David reminds us, let's look for God. Let's pray.
don't you ask God directly, God, what are you speaking to me today? In Jesus' name, we pray.